forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Oh, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate. Today I used cream that I think was too heavily scented. Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink. I didn't see what you were going to say coming, <laughs> and now it's all I can think about. What? Well, I normally have my body cream, because as we know, when I get out of the shower, I slather up my appendages, my arms, and my legs. It's and, true. Uh, <laughs> Melissa, she does the, the cream slap. She slaps lotion onto her body. Yeah, you got to slap it on in different areas, and then you spread it. That's the most effective. If you've never way. seen this, if you've never seen this in person, it's wild. I have eight or nine different moisturizers I put on, so what? it's another thing. How do you eight put? How nine? do you you put on your appendages? I have um, one that's specifically for my tits, one specific for my ass, that's and then how you, like that's the how base, you keep it looking so sharp. The, the chest area. I need to do the chest. Yeah, you gotta make sure in your neck and yeah, back I need your to neck. Do my neck and my chest. Yeah, more because I have a lot of sun damage on my mm-hmm. chest for sure. Different for my hands, different for my feet. What? Wow. And then I have just like one that just smells good that I rub all over. I'm gonna look so weathered. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna look like I've smoked fifty packs of cigarettes a day as I age. I don't know. So much of it is genetic. You yeah, just, you'll just that's have to true. wait it out and see. You know what? My dad has been really lovely about my transition. And yesterday I was talking to him on the phone and he was like, you know, I was worried. Not I was worried, but I was just like, you know, you're such a pretty girl and you're like, you know, so pleasant looking. And I didn't know like what it was gonna be, but now, like in a boyish way, you you still look like really good. You look really pleasant just in a boyish way. And, you know, like I think it's good because when I was uh, younger, I always wanted to look older and people would say, oh, we look so young. You look so young. And like you look like me, you know, you just look so young for your age and you're going to love it when you're old. <laughs> I was like, he's like, you look even younger, which is the thing with trans guys is that we you go through a phase where you look like a teenager. Like my friend CJ I was like waiting on a basketball court. We were like going to play basketball and I was waiting on the court and there were like a bunch of teenage boys on the court. And so I was waiting for CJ to come and I was just sitting in my like, you know, sportswear or whatever. And and CJ parks and I like wave and then they come closer and they go, I'm so sorry. I was just like, why is one of those teen boys waving at me? But then I got closer and it was you. (laughs) You meet up with friends and play b-ball? Yeah, I have my own basketball. (laughs) I have a whole life no one ever knows about. Oh, it's fascinating. I have a whole life that I don't even, I have movie club. I have talk about movie club all the time. And Melissa's part of movie club. I also, okay. So I also like not to like get really excited transly, but I also have like the boys. Like I have like a group of friends. You talk about them too. But it's, but like now it's like becoming like a group and we're like the boys. Of trans masks? No, not just, no. Like my, like it's, it's not just trans guys. It's like cis guys too. Oh, wow. And we're, but it's funny because my boyfriend Alex is also a trans guy and he's hangs out with like gay guys. So he does gay dodgeball and hangs out with like a bunch of gay guys. And then he was doing dodgeball and I was like, oh, I'm going to do trivia with my crew, my boys. But my boys are just like nerdy, straight movie guys. <laughs> so it's like he's got his boys and I got my boys. <laughs> and my, and then his boys are hot and like my boys are like hot in a nerd way. <laughs> All right. Well, this is just between us. A variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. It's just fun to have a little crew. Yeah. 
That's nice. I wouldn't describe my crew as a, as partiers. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we have a great show for you this week. We're going to be talking to Daniela Talpin Lundberg all about how movies get made. And it's a really fun convo about cinema. And later we'll be discussing chat GPT. Melissa doesn't know what it is. Melissa didn't know what it was, but we do. (laughs) And we can't wait to dive in. (laughs) But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! Toronto. Formerly Emily from Ottawa. You are not allowed to read any of the international questions. This is my part of the show. (laughs) Hi, Allison and Gabe. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this question. And I hope you both are doing well. Sending lots of love from Toronto. Mm. My question is a long one, so buckle in. I had a partner of four years and our relationship ended due to his infidelity. I used to always be the person who prioritized my friendships with his slash our friends over finding my own people. Our breakup led many people to choose sides and a lot of people I would consider myself close to chose to continue their friendships with him instead of me. Not my choice. I would have been fine if we all stayed friends, but my ex wanted to keep the friends to himself. Fast forward to four months after our breakup, one of the guys I was previously close to, so close we have matching tattoos, reached out and wanted to see me again. Not long after, the relationship turned sexual and we've been sleeping together for over a month now, along with going on trips to Ikea. So you're casually dating. Yeah, the full gamut of dating. (laughs) After all this time and friendship, it felt clear to me that this was the beginning stages of a relationship. And after communicating that with him, he expressed that he does not want a public relationship with me for fear of what it would do to his friendship with my ex. The question itself sort of boils down to, How do I let go of someone who didn't choose me? There's this special kind of pain from someone knowing you so well, loving you behind the scenes, but never enough to let anyone else know. Any advice on how to let the friendship and relationship go so I can move on to someone who wants to love me full time instead of part time would be greatly appreciated. With love, Emily. From Toronto, but formerly Emily from Ottawa. Man, this guy and his friends are real peaches, huh? What a real group of... You want to talk about a group of guys? Not good. (laughs) So how do we deal with it? I think I'm going to give a two-pronged approach. Go for it. The first prong is allowing yourself to grieve this Mm -hmm. because it's sad and it sucks and it's okay to be heartbroken and to like go through the motions of like a full-blown breakup, even though it was early stages because you're also letting go of the potential potential of what you saw it turning into. And then I'd say my second prong is to kind of focus on how much this man sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and that like, yeah. what what a loser that he I is. Know. Like, I, also, the fact that your relationship ended with infidelity on your ex's part and then all these people are staying friends with your ex is like baffling and that like is baffling. horrifying to me. And yeah. I don't know if there's like some context that we're missing here where like you are secretly, I don't know, like a pyromaniac who like set people's <laughs> houses on fire. But like if you're like a pretty up and up good person and friend and then they all pick the cheater side to the point where they like won't even stay in touch with you, right. even though you're comfortable with them being friends with both of you. Like, yeah, these people kind of stink. Yeah. And so I think that like realizing that like, the person that you were pursuing a relationship with isn't the actual person. 
Yeah, if that exactly. Makes sense. His actions are not that to which you've romanticized or looked forward to. Yeah, like he, like the real version of him is not just the version that you spent that month with. It's the person who has no backbone and Mm -hmm. is like a shitty person. Can I say something? Okay, so this this ex, right? He cheated. Everyone takes his side. Then this wimpy ass dude is like (laughs) afraid of him to be like, oh, I can't let him know that I'm dating you because like what will happen? This person seems like, from what you've described, people find this man scary. So I think get get out of there. This is like a cult of personality. And the personality is this man. And I think like if, if someone can't like stand up to their friend or if someone, if everyone just goes like, well, I don't know, we should. I, I feel like this is a group that you have to act like you're excommunicating yourself. Like you have to be like, oh, right. I need to get out of this circle that anyone in the, because it is, it is like not based in reality to continue to like defer to this one guy like get out of there yeah i mean i think it is who also is he? what the king of <laughs> russia get out of here well, we are missing some details who is he why is he so special i yeah i mean i think it's also an opportunity right for you to like have a clean break now yeah and for right. this person to be like your last connection to the this group and this time in your life and for you now to like fully prioritize yourself prioritize better people um, start new because sometimes healing can be harder when you still have one foot in the door. Like even if it's just like in the door of like a friend of your ex or, you know, like, <laughs> okay, hear me out. Oh no. She takes, she takes all the photos of them together from the last month, her and the guy, and she just uploads them to Instagram. Why do you think they have photos together? They mu- you don't think they had any photos together? Any text I- messages? Okay, screenshot, messages. screenshot any texts that were f- sexual or romantic, upload right to Instagram. Tag all of his friends, tag the guy. To create complete chaos. And then, and then delete Set it. their houses on fire. <laughs> <laughs> They're emotional. You're an emotional pyromaniac. I say upload all that shit, tag everyone, and then delete the app and go on vacation. I think you can bypass the destruction of, of other people and creating a lot of unnecessary drama. Sleep with him one last time. And then while you're in bed with him, take a picture of yourself with him in the bed and then upload that to Instagram and then tag everyone. <laughs> you're going to be suspended from the advice section. Of Why is that, not, is that not good advice? No, that would feel amazing. It though. would feel amazing. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't think you even need that. You don't need any more satisfaction or, or gra- you know, any kind of thing from these people anymore. You just need to surround yourself with better people and move but forward. if I saw someone do that, I'd be like, we should be friends. So that's kind of how you find those better people. It's <laughs> by being like, yo, that's fucking dope. That's fucking badass. I love that shit. Go, okay, sleep with him one oh, last no. time. Okay. Or go to, ask to go to Ikea. And then, and then FaceTime your ex and then at Ikea, just be like, look who I'm with. So what is like your motivation here? You feel better about your own heartbreak. Blowing their, blowing by, up their by friendship. By ruining other people's lives. Blow up their friendship. They don't need to be friends. Fuck. Why? They took advantage of you. So fuck them. <laughs> Ruin their friendship. That's not anything. Ruin their friendship and then bounce. So you feel like revenge is the best route for healing. This guy wanted to keep you a secret. Take out a billboard in your town. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. You want to make me a secret? No. I actually expose you. Actually, it's embarrassing for me to have been with you. Actually, I want to keep you a secret. 
All right. We got a real look into Gabe's psyche. <laughs> uh, hopefully parts of that were helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Screenshot the part where he said, don't tell anyone about this. And then put that on Instagram. Oh, boy. Okay, anyway. Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Daniela Talvin-Lundberg. Stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Daniela Talpin-Lundberg, who is a film producer and the founder of Stay Gold Features. She also hosts the podcast Hollywood Gold, where she talks to the people who made huge movies like Thelma and Louise, Memento, and Rush Hour. Producers, directors, screenwriters who know the real story behind the story. <laughs> Hello. Hi, how are you guys? We're good. We're so excited to to dive into the the nitty gritty of all of this because you know we've we've worked in the TV space and in the short film space and in the you know I got hired to write a movie that never got made space. But (laughs) oh, I want to hear all about that. I feel like that would be way more interesting. But I'm so excited to talk to you. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, like I I like I kind of want to start off with like a big question, but like. What do you think most people don't realize about how movies actually get made? I think the thing that I've learned over, you know, the 20 plus years I've been doing it is how many no's successful producers and filmmakers and actors get before they get yeses. And I would say I've, I've received probably like 98% no's, but uh, enough yeses where you you can sort of start to build up your career and a, a body of work that you're proud of. But, you know... I can't tell you how many no's I get a week or just non-responses, you know? And and I think in this business, in many businesses, you just have to like keep going and put it behind you and not take anything personally. But that's only the things I'm learning in like my 24th year of <laughs> producing. <laughs> in terms of the stuff that happens behind the scenes for a movie, how did you figure out, okay, I want to do producing? And for our audience, what what does a producer do? Yeah, that's like the biggest question. And I feel like the average person never knows. They're like, do you direct the actors? Do you, are you a writer? Like they never, they can never sort of quantify what a producer does. And what I say is a producer is like um, the CEO of of a young company, right? And a movie is is a basically its own existing company. And so you're in charge of sort of making the train leave the station. So you find the idea, you you find a way to get that script written and hire the, the filmmakers. Um, you hire the cast and the crew. You find the money for that. You oversee production. You are constantly putting out fires. You're making sure things stay on budget and stay creatively in line with what you all talked about at the beginning. And then once the film is done, you're overseeing the edit and helping the director find their vision. And then you're getting it out into the marketplace and either selling that film or or helping the studio put it out in the right way with the right imagery and the right trailers. So you really are sort of overseeing the entire thing. And it's sort of your your responsibility to make sure it gets out into the world in the right place. It's a long gig. <laughs> <laughs> and there's such a difference, I also think, between like creative producers and producers who are more just... Money. 
money and, yeah. and connections That's and right. like Name. we'll read the yeah. script and go yeah sure <laughs> versus yeah. like some create some producers like really get their hands dirty with like creative notes and that's right. What What is your style more? I think I'm, you know, I have always been a creative producer first. And I think my bread and butter is working with writers and filmmakers and helping get that vision onto the screen and really serving as sort of a second set of eyes and, and a trusted partner for my for my filmmakers. But I really quickly learned early on that creative producing can only take you so far. So as a producer it kind of helps if you can understand the financial side of things and and raise money and and talk to investors and because most of the movies i've produced honestly have been financed independently and then i'll take them to a festival and sell them to a studio and so really quickly when i was much younger i just got frustrated with the studios saying no to things that i thought were really meant to be out in the world. And I would say the first real big moment we had of that was the kids are all right. No one wanted to make that movie. And my partners and I were like, well, if we can figure out a way to put money in the bank, then we can get this movie out into the world. And it could be really, really impactful and and also entertaining. And so that was like really my light bulb moment where it's like, Yes, I do this for the creative reasons, but it also really helps to figure out the financial side so that you can actually get movies out into the world and not not just talk about them, right? So how much did a movie like that actually cost to make? That movie cost four and a half million dollars. Which is low for... That's a low budget yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that was... And that's a really hard thing when you're when you're not partnered with a studio and you're just raising money independently, it's it's like every dollar a budget gets is risk out into the world. And there is there is a very real potential that like that money never comes back to the people who entrust it to the budget. So, you know, when you're making independent films, I find that like just really understanding in advance what you think the market would want and trying to squeeze the budget as much as you can so that you're risking less because for me, you know, it always makes sense to try to keep the budget slow so that you can sort of surprise your investors and hopefully get them their money back. And even if they're not getting like 3x their return, at least they're getting some money back and they believe in you and they keep investing in you. So I'm always trying to like balance the creative, what the creative needs, what the budget needs, what the film needs with how much I think the market can bear. So it's a, it's a balancing act for for every film and every film has a sort of different equation. Who is money is this? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times I, you know, and earlier in my career and now I have like a set of investors who trust me and they invested with me for many years in different movies that they've seen money back. So you kind of like you make people money and they want to keep investing in you, right? But very early on, it was just like making cold calls for people who, you know, had just sold their company for, you know, X amount of money or you thought, you know, you met at an event in New York and they sort of seemed interested in the creative space or someone would introduce you to someone who was interested in a particular story about a particular person. And, you know, you just start to you know, you got to be scrappy. You got to like figure it out. And I know that's that's so much easier said than done. I mean, it's taken me 25 years to amass a, a group of people who will invest in the movies I make. But, you know, ideally you, you're creating a project that you can go and take out to the marketplace and, 
you know, sell it to a studio, but that's not always the case. So I say for young producers, young filmmakers, like if you can go make something for $5,000 and get it online and submit it to festivals, that's to me another path in, you know, it's like trying to get a story that feels original and that it's going to have impact in the market and start small. You don't have to, you don't have to raise a a million dollars for your first film, you know, try to start with something with a a group of people that you believe in and and go make something small and then build up (laughs) one step at a time. I mean, that's, that's sort of how I did it. Also, I think there's a lot of like foreign financiers, it seems like in the space. Yeah. You know, more and more, I, I, I find that like, there's certain the certainly that path of like trying to pre-sell your movie with, you know, foreign pre-sales and, and it's, it's a little bit more. So, you know, if you have a movie and you have an actor attached and it's a, let's say it's a horror film you can go to foreign sales companies and there's hundreds and hundreds that exist. And those foreign sales companies will say, oh, your movie is worth $50,000 in Spain or it's worth $100,000 in China. And we think that if you put this package together with this kind of movie, with this kind of actor, we can ultimately sell your movie to all those different countries all over the world for X amount of money. And so Sometimes when that happens, then you can take those contracts to a bank and they'll loan you money. And it's a way to finance your movie. For me, I, I used to try to do that a lot. It's really complicated. It, it takes a lot of juggling. And more and more, the way that I put together movies is just believing in a concept and then raising money from, from investors, you know, and I, I've come to a place where I've built my own film fund so I can, you know, finance a bit on my own um, with investors that I've worked with for a long time. I I try not to do the foreign sales game because it is, it really does overcomplicate things. And at the end of the day, I think if you put together a movie with a really incredible arc and great performances, then you can go to a festival and, and just try to sell that at the festival, as opposed to trying to sell it piecemeal to, you know, a hundred different countries. It just, it's a way more complicated version. So I've like come, I went over to that side and I came back to the side of just like, just try to raise a little money and treat everyone the same. And if the money movie makes a little money, then everyone participates. And if the movie doesn't make money, then no one participates. Mm -hmm. And my whole methodology has just typically been put everyone in the same pot and treat them the same. Pro rata, pari passu. If the movie makes $10, everyone makes makes a piece of that $10. and, And that sort of served me well. I think just keeping things simple helps. This might be a rude question, but what's the most money a movie of yours has ever made? Oh, that's not rude. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I made a movie called Harriet and um, that probably made close to $50 million at the box office domestically. That was really great. I made a movie called Beasts of No Nation, which was a really, really hard movie to make. Yeah. Oh my God, you know it. Thank you. And that was the first movie that Netflix had ever acquired, meaning that was the first original Netflix movie that they ever decided to buy and put out as a Netflix original. Um, Before that, they had just been like licensing Disney movies or Paramount movies or Warner Brothers movies. And we as Netflix users were just watching movies that other people made. And then Beasts of No Nation, which was I think 2015, 
was the first time they were like, oh, we should be making our own movies because eventually Disney's just going to want to go do Disney Plus and put out their own movies and they're not going to let us put out Disney movies anymore. And that was, so Beasts of No Nation was kind of momentous in that way. And so they, they ended up paying $12 million for that movie, way more than other companies because we were sort of taking a risk on going with them because they hadn't, they hadn't released movies that way yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, we could have gone with a number of other companies, but Netflix was like, we're going to put everything behind this. We really believe in this. We have a ton of money, (laughs) which really helps, right? In in getting your movie out in the right way. If you have a company that's willing to put ads on buses and trailers on TV and, you know, in LA on billboards, then your movie has a much better chance of being seen. And so we we took a risk on them and they took a risk on us. And it was it was really an exciting year. You know, that was a big one. And when you're like looking to put together a project, how important is the talent? Like how much are you willing to sacrifice of your budget to get that well-known actor or actress because you know that that's what yeah. will bring people in? Or do you care more about the story? <laughs> That is such a good question. I I think, you know, it really depends on the movie and I'll I'll just cite a couple of examples and you guys are so nice to even ask. Normally people don't want to hear what producers have to say, but (laughs) so, you know, I did a movie called Hello, My Name is Doris a couple years ago. Thanks guys. And, you know, that was a movie by one of my dearest friends and great filmmaker, a guy named Michael Showalter. And we know who Michael <laughs> Showalter is. Yeah. Do you know Showalter? Oh, yeah. oh he's I mean, I can I mean, we don't I know him personally, him. but he's no, but epic, I could, epic in the I industry. could talk about him all day. Um, he really is one of the hardest working, talented guys I know. But, uh, but in any event, Michael hadn't made a movie in a few years and he came up with this sort of unique concept that that I thought was had had legs but I knew that I needed to put someone in that role that would like draw an audience right like I couldn't just put an actor that no one knew in that role or else we 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 weren't really going to get traction in the marketplace because we were we were making it independently and so you know in his wildest dream he was like oh Sally Field would be so good at in this and she had never made an independent film i mean she wow. she was only really in studio films and so he really convinced her that this was going to be um, something really special and it wasn't going to make fun of her. It was going to be a story that was like told lovingly about this character. And she took a big, big risk on us. And it was because she was in the movie that the movie did so well. You know, we we went to South by Southwest, a company called Roadside Attractions bought us. They put us in theaters. We made close to $20 million at the box office. And it was a big what's called a blue hair movie. It was like older people would go see the movie over and over again, right? And so we knew that we needed someone like Sally to draw those audiences in, someone they felt familiar with. And so that was that was a really good example of that. A movie like Harriet Tubman, you know, the concept is almost the star, right? Like everyone in America knows who Harriet Tubman is. Maybe they don't know the details of her story, but we were like, Harry Tubman was sort of America's first superhero, you know, like the things she accomplished. And so it was less important to put, you know, like an, a huge superstar into that role. It was really important to cast the person who would really do the role justice. And so that was less reliant on a, like a, a big, big name, even though Cynthia Rivo has gone on to become a big star. But at the time, she was really a stage actress 
And we just thought she was going to nail the part, which, which she absolutely did. And so, and she got an Oscar nomination for it actually. So, you know, that was less reliant on, on a big star or, or what we would consider a star at the time. So, you know, we also did this movie called Patty Cakes. Um, yeah. Have you see, guys seen that? Yes. Yeah. And that was a movie that really had no stars. It was really the director just casting great, great actors. And we went to Sundance with that movie. And I, I will say there's a few moments in my career where you're just like, you'll never forget. And I remember Showalter was actually sitting next to me at that screening. He happened, he had that movie, The Big Sick there at the same oh, year. Yeah. And we, we went to the premiere and, you know, I was so nervous and it was the first movie I'd made with my new company, Stay Gold. And that movie, people were like yelling and screaming and dancing and, and moving in their seats. And it, that movie's so triumphant. And I just remember like, as soon as the lights went up, I was like, oh my God, people go, went crazy. And it was one of those things you hear about where every company wants to buy it and they're bringing in, you know, their whole 10 person team at midnight. And it was like a big negotiation. And, and so, but that, that movie didn't have really any big movie stars. It was all about the concept and the music and how original it was. So it really depends on the movie. What do you do when it just doesn't go well? <laughs> oh, man. I have plenty of those stories. I'm just saying, you know, like, because I think to to some people, not everyone listening to this show is like in entertainment. So to some sure. people, like we're like, oh, four million dollars, a low budget movie. Some people are like, a movie costs four million dollars. Like that would be unimaginable. A hundred percent. The idea of going to, of starting out and of going to these financiers and even saying, can you give me a million dollars? Like, oh, you just walk up to someone and say, give me a million dollars to make a movie. Are you insane? Oh, totally. How do you, which I know a lot of this business is just like sheer delusion and also like not caring about rejection in any way. But like what happens when you've gotten so much money from people and then the movie doesn't make it back? Totally. I mean, I would say it's, it's a great question. And you're right. It's not just like, you can't just jump in and be like, I'm going to go raise a million dollars. Like, it, you know, it's taken me years and years of like working in the business, working my way up the business, figuring out the business, figuring out what the market wants, like trying to understand like what the studios are actually going to want to buy. Like that really takes time. It's like, you know, I've had like 25 years of like, you know, whatever grad school in, in working in this business. I would say what I learned because when I was super young, you know, I would make a movie kind of just to make a movie, right? Like I would just be like, oh, anything, I will do anything to get this movie made and really didn't think about like, well, do audiences want to see this movie that I'm busting my hump to get made, right? And so there have been several times in my career where I made a movie that no one wanted to see and no one wanted to buy. And then I would, I would get so embarrassed that I would go and hide, right? Like I would just like evade the calls and just like pretend it was all fine. And, and then I quickly realized like, the next best thing you can do if you don't have a success is to be really transparent and honest and just say, listen, I've learned now to say, listen, if you can't lose this money, do not invest this money. You should only invest this money if it's something you're willing to lose because this playing films is like playing racehorses. Yeah, like it, you just, it's gambling, right? Like you just don't know. And, and, you know, I have enough experience where I'm I'm a little bit better at gambling, but it's still gambling. And so I I just always say to my investors, like, 
if you're not willing to lose this money, please don't invest. Like, because there will be a moment where we don't, we don't hit the jackpot. And then as long as you are sort of communicative and, you know, we check in with our investors four to five times a year, we give them updates on how we're doing. Then at the very least, they say, well, you were honest. And I took the bet knowing like, this is, this is a risky business. And, and that, that has tended to serve me well as I, as I get older. (laughs) (laughs) Do they sort of stop trusting at a certain point, certain people? You know, I think it's not a business for everyone, but I would say, you know, in my old, like the more I do this, the more I find that investors or the ones that I found, they want to be part of films that feel like they're sort of changing hearts and minds. And those are the movies I try to make. I try to tell stories of like sort of underserved stories, stories that don't always get made. I'm, I'm not going to be the producer who makes the Marvel movies ever. Like the, the studios are doing that, you know? So I'm going to make Honey Boy and I'm going to make Patty Cakes and I'm going to make Kids Are All Right. Those are the movies that I really feel like those are stories that need to be told. And so I, I tend to find that like my investors, they don't, they don't put in their life savings. They'll put in you know, some money and, and then I'll just aggregate a ton of, ton of investors. But they, they tend to stick around because it's, it's a lot of people who don't normally you know, aren't involved in entertainment. So they, they're interested in the business in, a, in, in the sense that it's sort of a diverse thing for them. It's an interesting, like new, new place for them to sort of explore. And access, right? I mean, they get to go to the premiere, yeah, yeah. they get to meet the people, That's they get right. to be a like, part uh, of it. Going to, the, to, the, to Sundance or going to South By or going to Toronto, like that's really, really a cool thing that a lot of people, and I forget this, that a lot of people just don't know how to access, you know? We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. I went to school for screenwriting and one of the first things they taught us was that in TV, the writer is king and in film, the writer means nothing. (laughs) I know. And so I'm like wondering, you know, like you're working with this writer to like get the script that you want. But then as soon Mm -hmm. as it becomes the director's project, the director has control over the script. And so have you ever had to navigate that like you work so hard to get the script where you kind of wanted it and then the director wants to completely butcher it or change it or do these things that like you don't agree with, but you know, on the movie set, the director is in charge, quote unquote. (laughs) Well, it's so funny. I have been working with a lot of writer directors lately, which Mm -hmm. helps, right? It's like, it's, you know, they, it's their vision and then, and then they are able to communicate the vision so well that we end up hiring them to direct. So, I made a movie called Together Together um, with Ed Helms and, and Patty Harrison and Nicole Beckwith was the writer-director. Harriet was a writer-director. Alma Harrell did a lot of writing on, on Honey Boy. And so I'm having to deal with that less because I do work with a lot of writer-directors. But you're right, in, in movies, it's like you spend so much time developing something with the writer and then at a certain point they do they kind of are pushed aside because now you're entrusting that piece of writing to the director and really the director needs to be able to like execute their full vision. And so as I get older, I realize that it really is great if you can keep your writer involved because they've 
thought about it probably for years and years and years. They probably thought about all sorts of things that even the director isn't like fully cognizant of as the new like sort of purveyor of the vision. And so I always these days try to keep my writers and my directors sort of linked on calls and update calls just because I, I like that dialogue to be able to continue. But you're right. Historically, it's like, the writer's done. Like now, yeah. it's the director's like, thing. We'll and let you come so to sad. set one day. Yeah, just, but you can't say anything totally. or talk to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like who's that porn person? And it's like, well, I, I, I created this whole thing. Created the whole thing. <laughs> so crazy. And you're right. On the, I'm just starting to do TV. On the TV side, the showrunner is king. I mean, the showrunner is like the biggest star in in TV Hollywood. So. And, and for those who don't know, the showrunner sort of like the the big big writing boss on all tel- television shows. So like Shonda Rhimes is a showrunner, and she's like most important person in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been like in production and been like, oh, this is not good? Like where uh, where you need to like make some creative changes fast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I remember, I remember one, um, one little movie. It was like earlier in my career, but for whatever reason, we like, we were having a really hard time finding the female lead. And all of a sudden, like we made this, like we had been debating all these actresses and all of a sudden we made this like random decision to hire this actress that we had just seen the day before. And she, you know, we flew her out to New York and we were doing a table read, like a, a reading of the whole script with all the cast. And I remember looking at my producing partners and being like, oh my God, she's not, this is terrible. Like, this is terrible. (gasps) Ah. And and we were going to shoot Monday and that was a Friday. And immediately after the table read, we were like, what? What?" And it's it's the thing of young producers. Sometimes you just make these decisions and you don't sleep on them. You know, like you just make a snap decision. It was a good lesson for me. And we were like, we got to, we got to replace her. And so we replaced this actress. We got a new actress on by Saturday afternoon and she was on a plane Sunday and she started shooting Monday morning and she was great. She was really, really good. And and we handled the other thing sort of very calmly and rationally. And, and I remember the actress and the agent were really, really understanding. And it, it actually like was a good lesson, but oh goodness, that was, that was rough. That was, that's a rough thing when you're like making someone's dream come true and then you're taking it away and oh, it's really, this business can be horrible. Yeah. It's mostly horrible. It's mostly horrible. (laughs) Yeah. I would say it's largely horrible. I mean, I I remember my friend was about to have his first movie go into production. And I think like the week before the money pulled out. Like literally, like, you know, like it's one of those things where there's... I can't tell you how many, how many stories I've heard. Oh, just like it's not real until it's on your screen and done because and there's so then, many things that can go wrong along the way. Yeah. yeah. No, it's so, it's so true. And, you know, it's part of the reason that I went out and like busted my hump to raise my own money and literally have money in a bank account so that I can be paying people who are like, you know, working you know, weeks and weeks on a, on a movie before like the official funding closes, because I just, you know, I got to a certain point. I was like, this, this, these are people's lives. Like, you know, this isn't a charity. Like people need to like sustain their lives and, and pay their bills. And, you know, the idea that like we live in this 
this industry where like, they're like, well, the money will close when it closes. We need to have all these things signed and da, 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 da. And people are just expected to work for free is really, it really became hard for me to like sort of live with that. And so it's part of the reason I went and raised, raised money for that kind of thing. Well, that's wonderful because most companies don't seem to care about no, having they you write for all. free. They want you to write for free all the time. They don't care. I know. You're just like lucky to be there, right? Yeah. You're like, you're lucky to be in this industry. Negotiate this if come deal for you for three months and then never pay you. Yes. yes. <laughs> you want to explain what an if come deal is? An if come deal, I think historically is more often with like a studio. Um, I guess it could be with a production company, but production companies tend to not even do that where yeah. like you're negotiating all of the terms of a project for if it sells to a network and right, so right like I you know I've had if I'm deal with the studio where if my show sold I knew exactly what I would get paid and I would know exactly right. what I get paid per episode and all these things and for the script sale and everything but that studio isn't paying me unless that happens um, until that happens yeah, right. if that happens then this comes um right right it's just so crazy. I mean, the same thing I will say happens for us as producers. Like, you know, we're working months and months and months to put pitches together. And like, and and then even when it does sell, like we, we very rarely even get a development fee for that process. And it's just like, it's again, like we're putting all this risk and time and effort and sweat equity into things. And it's like, you only get paid if the, if the project gets actually shot. And so it really... <laughs> It can be demoralizing, <laughs> but um, I don't know why I keep doing it, but I do. I think it also speaks to like the stories that get made because it's a, it's a privilege to be able to work for free. It's a privilege to be able to keep pushing on something that doesn't guarantee you any money or that you have the time to do it. So then I feel like we lose out on all these stories and voices because of the way that this process works. It's a really good point. It's like, you know, it, the industry sort of becomes self-selective because the only people who can like really participate are the ones who can actually figure out a way to sustain financially. And so that's something that, you know, we've been thinking a lot about at the company and, and trying to create sort of paid internships so that at least people um, who want to get into the business are, are able to sustain while they're you know, trying to investigate whether this is their passion or not. So it is it, but you're hitting upon something that I really think about a lot. Before we move on to, to the game show, I just have one final question, which is what is your favorite movie of all time? Mm. You know, I've been doing this podcast where I interview these producers about like great movies. I have so many and the, and they like, they're all over the map. I would say like I watch Thelma and Louise probably once every couple of months. That's one that like really, really resonates for me. And I just watched it and I, I interviewed the screenwriter about her process of writing it. But I just love the sort of evolution of, of Gina Davis in that film. And like, you know, she starts off in these like Sears catalog, like pink lipstick and like mm. perfect curly hair. And then like, as she starts to discover who she is, it's like she like, finds the trucker hat and she cuts off the t-shirt and like NM just like, and she gets sunburnt. And I, I just love, um, it's such a, such a lesson in, in great screenwriting and character development. Um, so that's one of them. I have to say, I also, I also love Goodfellas so much. Um, <laughs> and yes. I just love, I just love Henry Hill is such a flawed character and, and, but you love him. 
you know, and like he, and he's just constantly breaking the law and, and, you know, unfaithful to Lorraine Bracco and, and just running drugs. And, and yet you're, he's a character that you continue to sort of believe in and root for. And it's incomprehensible to me. So I just thought Scorsese was at the height of his powers with that one. And then I love all sorts of like period dramas and, you know, Room with a View and yeah. The Bicycle Thief and fancy movies like that. But um, those, mm-hmm. those are some of them. Well, my favorite movie is Get Over It. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you. No one's ever seen. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, get over it. Get over it. Remind me. Remind me. Oh, it's a early 2000s rom-com starring Ben Foster and Kirsten Dunst with uh, Martin Short as the eccentric as the eccentric drama teacher. You know, it's so funny. I have seen the cover to that movie many times. And I'm always like, should I just pop this on and see what it's about? Yes, it's Allison's favorite movie. It's shaped my sense of humor more than anything else. Oh my God, I will absolutely, I'm going to watch it this weekend. Oh, please let me know what you think. I have movies like that. Like I have like The Duff or like um, She's the Man. Like um, Amanda Bynes, Mm -hmm. like uh, Channing Tatum's, like one of his first roles. And I'm like, those are great. Those are just like pop those on and just enjoy a Saturday afternoon. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. My favorite movie is True Romance. That's always been that one. I mean, Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater. It really, I love Christian Slater so much. I know. It's one of his greatest roles. I mean, I, you know, I grew up on Heather, so he really could do no wrong for me for so long. But also all the sort of cameos, like Christopher Walken was so good with, with. Yes. Um, Dennis Hopper. With Dennis Hopper. Who I also am obsessed with. Oh my God. You, have you seen Apocalypse Now? Yes. Lately? Not lately, but. Okay. Well, I'm just, I'm interviewing the producer of that, like in a couple of weeks. So I I rewatched it. And then I, I, and then there's like an accompanying um, documentary called Heart of Darkness because oh, they shot that, it over yeah. one year. Have you? Got, oh my god! Yes. I was just like obsessed with Dennis Hopper and how strung out he was on that. Show. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I my favorite thing is that like my one of my second or third favorite movies is Rebel Without a Cause, and Rebel oh, Without sure. a Cause is Dennis Hopper's yes. first role, but he's uncredited. But you can he's, see him. He's he's uncredited, but I totally remember him. So in that. I'm like Dennis Hopper's in technically in my first and second favorite movies. <laughs> That Which is, is so wild. I know. Yeah. Love oh, him. Oh, that's incredible. That's so cool. Anyway. Now we have to play a silly game show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Am I going to be bad at this? I, there, this it's not possible. Thing, no, it's very so subjective. The only way okay. to be bad would to not to share your thoughts, I'd say. Okay, okay. So just I'll share your thoughts and you'll and win. Honest. Okay. Uh, so in this game, you a gamer, my contestants, I'm going to share some hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And okay. sometimes I declare a winner and sometimes I don't. And I keep you on your toes. Okay. Okay. Oh my God. I'm stressed. I'm stressed <laughs> really already. D- don't Ooh. be. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Every year you travel to a remote bed and breakfast in New Hampshire with your partner of 34 years. You find out that during each visit, your partner sneaks away to have sex with the B&B owner because their connection is electric and they give you a big discount on the hotel room. Would you stay with this cheater? What? (laughs) Are we monogamous? Yeah. 
What? How long have they been doing this? Um, you've been doing it. Well, you've been with your partner for thirty four years total, and you've been going to the bed and breakfast for thirty two years. Every year. Oh Every year. How much is God. the discount? A uh, half. And do we need it? No, but who doesn't need a discount? No, I'm. Oh I'm, my God, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> <sighs> 34 years is a long time, though. Right? That's what happens on this show right? every time. Every time there's a cheating, we go, oh, well, you know, I, I would have to leave on principle. But then when Allison's like, you've been together 40 years, we go, oh, we're so tired. I don't know. Oh, what are we like gonna- the thought of trying to, like, start all over again and, like, oh, get and ready for the- a date, that would be very exhausting. That's the only time they cheat, but it is once a year. <laughs> okay. And, that, and, right. and well, also, it's not just for the discount. You said their passion is electric. Well, they have an electric connection. But sometimes you just have that with the owner of a remote bed and breakfast. Well, yeah, the, in, like, a Hallmark movie. <laughs> <gasps> oh, God. I think if I, it's I under the Tuscan do- Son. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're just discovering this on your 34th year. Yes. So you think you've been living like sort of marital, not bliss, but Very you think happy. you've had a really happily married for, yeah. Th- oh yeah, I think I, think I would have to like. Is the business owner hot? You're not attracted to the, the business owner, but you have always noticed this electric chemistry. No, between them I, I don't partner. like to be, no, no, I'm I out. Don't I don't like want it. to be made I don't like it. Of. I don't like it either. I don't like it. I'm all right. So we're all going to leave. Yeah. But I would also demand that I should, that I should get to own the B&B somehow. I don't know. I would just say, if you want to make this right, I should get to now remove my life, start anew. And now I get to run the B&B. And that you switch places. Yeah. Like they owe you that. Yeah. And you run it with your, your no, no, you mistress? get no, you get to run it, and you actually have had this electric chemistry with this local farmer, and so now this it's is all a Hallmark movie. movie. Yeah, okay. You are a writer, yeah, you right. Allison, oh my god, I yep. love that twist, Allison. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, our next game: Are you a terrible parent? Your child, eight, learned how to twerk at summer camp. Oh no, and doesn't understand the sexual implications of the dance. Okay. To get them, <laughs> I forgot what I did. Okay. To get them to stop doing it in public, you tell them that when they twerk, they're accidentally releasing poop particles and everyone can smell them. So they should only do it when they are alone. Are you a terrible parent? No, now I this- think you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm confused because Yeah. I guess, I guess, like, is, then we get into, like, is twerking inherently right. sexual? But right, that, is it right. just dancing? Like, what's wrong with twerking? Why the little kids aren't allowed to do stuff because people are creepy and gross. But also, so wouldn't my kid be like, but I don't smell the poop particles. Well, you'd say, well, you can't smell your own poop particles. That's how the human right. body it's works. It's coming out of your butt. Okay, like, now we're just smell. screwing with science. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say something like, like it's illegal or something, but no, like I gotta keep it. I gotta keep you on your toes. Yeah, poop particles. You know, I'm the parent of three, and so I'm. I've utilized tactics like this myself, so I may be a terrible parent. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? Oh wow! You know, just thing. Oh, like when my kids were little, and I can't remember one of the things we came up with, but we would say like there's cameras in the, in the bathroom. And we know if you're not brushing your teeth or we, (laughs) we know if you're like staying on your iPad for more than two hours, like we can see. And 
you know, we have like. <laughs> you created a, the sense of a surveillance state. A real yeah. panopticon. <laughs> and by the way, like they got old enough where they're like, mom, we can't believe we believed you. And that really worked. And I was like, I just needed it to work while I was working on set. You know what I mean? Like I would be away on mm-hmm. set in Virginia or whatever it was. And I needed to somehow enforce rules while not being present. Sure. So it was a, it was a short-term <laughs> solution that would work temporarily. So things like that. One of my friends said that he told his kid that yogurt was ice cream. Brilliant. And then he, oh, they would just, yeah. he, and then he would just, the kid would be like, I want to get ice cream. And he'd be like, okay, we have yogurt, like, or we have ice cream at yeah. home. And it was yogurt. Wow. Oh. I saw a little father and child yesterday sharing a cup of Greek yogurt. It was very cute. That's cute. <laughs> that is cute. Impressive. Yeah. Impressive. Before I could read, or my sister and I could read, my parents, whatever we had a fortune cookie would say that it said, be good to your mommy and daddy. <laughs> and I'd be like, every time we're getting the same That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so good. Our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You are a vegetarian. And while at a restaurant, you order their French onion soup. Halfway through eating it, you ask your waitress if it is vegetarian. And she says yes. A few weeks later, when you go back to the restaurant, you have the same waitress and ask for the vegetarian French onion soup. The waitress turns bright red and admits it has chicken stock but didn't want to ruin your day when you had already eaten so much of it. You ask if it is just chicken stock, and then they confess it actually has beef and pork stock as well. (gasps) Would you forgive this liar? No. No. Tell me more. That feels aggressive. No. That feels aggressive. Listen, I am a full-on meat eater, so it's hard for me to get like as emotional, but I think that is a a bridge too far. You cannot some, screw with someone's yeah. dietary stuff. You cannot. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't know. You, you don't, don't know, know why they're a vegetarian. Yeah. Yeah. What if it was like, you know, something very oh, an allergy? Intense? Yeah. It, well, as bad. a vegetarian, I would want to be lied to. What? I'll be honest. For a long okay. time, I was having ramen, not realizing that that was pork. <laughs> 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 you just wanted to live in the dark. I would get the soup and I get the tofu added as the protein. Oh, not and realizing so what the broth was. Like, um, a, and then I started uh, to suspect and I and I had to have a, I had to have a real reality check. And now it's taken out of your life. And do you miss it? Well, I get the hippie ramen, which is the vegan ramen now. Yeah. Is and it it's is delicious. delicious though? Yeah. Is it? Only at oh, okay, one okay. place. Only one okay. place does it well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I think people make fun of vegans and vegetarians and don't take it seriously, but I think that that's shitty. And I think that the it should be treated as if the person has an allergy. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, I get why the waitress would do it. I wonder what I, what, yeah, I mean, it. Because what are you going to do? She, go at make least yourself- she came clean though. She She didn't let you do it again. Yeah, she didn't let you do it again. That's yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think she does have a moral compass, obviously. She was trying to do, she was trying to be kind. Right. And like, I'm not going to get her fired, but I will be, I yeah. will say to her like, hey man, you can't do this because sometimes people have allergies and you got to really, yes. what if I needed to rush to the hospital, but instead I'm just right. still slurping right. down this soup. Well, no, at the beginning of the meal, she said to the table, does anyone have any allergies here? And you said no. Oh, come oh. on. <laughs> oh, now come you on. again. Very writerly. She's like, Allison's like covering, covering her bases. Yeah. Waiters have been doing that lately, though. It's very nice. What? Yeah. They, at the top of the meal, they yes. ask if anyone at the table has any allergies. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining Gosh, us. This was so fun. It was so thank fun. So having me. What a what a fun chit chat. I got all sorts of energy from it. Oh, oh yay! And where can people find you in your podcast? Oh, it's called the Hollywood Gold Podcast, and you can find it anywhere: Spotify, Apple, you know, all the places. Lovely. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about chat GPT. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for topics. X, 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 baby. 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 Uh-huh. <laughs> Ooh, a little extra. A little something for the road. <laughs> so melissa was excited to talk about chat gpt and you know who loves chat gpt is my fiance fiance, john John. blakesley loves you're putting a lot in my mouth i didn't say i was excited you said it could be your new best friend if you see that i suggest a topic you didn't think let me google this i did and like (laughs) like no i literally googled it and i was like what the hell is this then it makes sense yeah that makes okay so i asked i wouldn't just Sounds like something someone else would do. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Yes. Well, I don't like to look dumb, so I do Google stuff. Okay. But, like, you will literally be like, hey, can someone make me a calendar invite for this? And it's like, just put in your own calendar. I want the invite. What if I put something in wrong? All right. A, a discussion for another at least time. Every, at least then everyone can be wrong, you know, if somebody else sends it. Right. Oh, that's, that's what I'm true. saying. Because, like, what if I put in the wrong address and then they... I need to see that they put the address. I confirm addresses a lot. You did earlier today. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, ChatGPT, your fiance is obsessed with it. Yes. So, I'm going to read the description. It okay. is a software that's going to change all of our lives. ChatGPT is a chatbot developed by OpenAI and launched in November of 2022. It is built on top of OpenAI's GPT-3 family of large language models and has been fine-tuned using both supervised and reinforcement learning techniques. And basically what it means is you can ask this thing to do anything for you and it it will, it will. So like you can be like, I want a workout that does, that works out my, my calves and my shoulders and it's 40 minutes and then it will like make that for you because like it's just like pulling all of this information from the internet. But like it already exists. No, look at okay, so John discovered this and then spent an entire plane ride asking it to do things. But how is that different than Googling it? Or no, I'm not saying Google. This device that I have over here that I won't say because it'll activate A L E X A. If I ask it to do that, then it will pull the information. It will pull it will pull like a link to something, but no. this will create it itself. Okay, but it but it will pull like videos that do it. Right. This will create create an it egg, from other okay. things. An, an exercise regimen that it has created for you. Yeah. So John gave it the instructions. Write a melodramatic monologue on the style of Shakespeare from a character named Allison who hates the male because she thinks it is dirty. <laughs> Which okay. is me and so it it wrote oh how i loathe the male it is the bane of my existence the thought of touching those grimy envelopes soiled by the hands of strangers fills me with disgust i can't bear to open my mailbox for fear of what lurks within the bills the solicitations the junk mail 
They all pile up, taunting me with their filth. Well, as someone who has problem expressing their feelings, this sounds like it'll be great for me. This will be great for you. (laughs) Chat chat GPT, explain to this person that I like them despite my face and demeanor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like that, those words together have never existed before. Like it created it it by itself. I like that, but I feel like it, it properly expresses how you feel about the male and, and me too, which is why my male just sits in a box over here. Oh yeah. The male's disgusting. Yeah. I hate the fucking male. Oh male, how I hate thee. Let me count the ways. Oh, there's thou more. art dirty. Thou art loathsome. Thou art the very embodiment of all that is vile and contemptible. I need, okay. I need <laughs> you to use a Shakespearean voice though. Oh, how I wish I could rid myself of this foul necessity. But alas, it seems I am doomed to suffer the daily torment of the male. Wow. Very good. Was it bad? No, no it was very that was good. great. <laughs> I think, okay. And it, and, and John asked it to do a, a podcast episode just between us with Gabe and Allison, and it did a whole dialogue. Was it in your... Like voices, though? Not really. Okay. No, but it like knew that we talked about mental health and it knew that we talked and like it guessed that we were millennials. So it like it assumed that we liked the band The 1975, which is very funny. Like, are these two white millennials? Yeah, they, they like, like this, this band. band. <laughs> um, Never heard of it. That's correct. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. So like I am not smart, but the man that I am dating is smart and he said, and now I'm thinking about it, it kind of pulls from, right? So it's pulling from Shakespeare, which you gave it as a prompt. It's pulling from words for the male and it's pulling from words for dirty, but it's pulling from things that like the word bane of existence existed or like the word, like it's well, yeah, kind of like just putting not. together information that already existed. It's not creating information. That's what anything is. Like, I'm not creating new phrases when I'm writing. I'm just using words that already exist and putting them in a new order. Right. Hmm. And so, like, it's the kind of thing where, like, a lot of people could potentially lose their jobs, right? Who write marketing emails because yeah. you could just, like, put in some prompts and tell this thing what to do and it could write you your marketing email. That's horrible. Yeah, I think it's, I think it is causing more disruption in the industry than people are letting on. It might replace Google. Right. Because instead of just going to Google where it gives you like all these results, like this would like give it to you like more succinctly and quicker. And like, I don't know, like it, 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 I think that like in the next few years, this thing will be will have like changed a lot of stuff that like we're not anticipating or even able to like understand quite yet. I think we don't even the average person, we're not understanding AI correctly either from what I've gathered like we're we're thinking of AI as like having things in it, but it is more of like a, a void that isn't storing the information. It's just pulling the information. So people are like afraid of AI in this sense that like, oh, it's going to become sentient in some way. But it's that's sort of less likely than we've we've been led to believe. And that's what I keep trying to tell people. Yeah, because like it's just it's just pulling like it, it's doing what you tell it to do, essentially. What if it becomes sentient? But what about those robot dogs that the cops they, they, keep wanting to Those robot use? dogs still do what they're, they're told to do. They're, they're programmed. programmed to do it. Have you guys seen the little robots, but like, delivering stuff? Yeah. Going around? That just became normal. First time I saw one, I was like, ah! 
now it's like, oh, we just we just live in a. I was like, we what the hell? Like things became normal so quickly. Like now we just live in a society where a little robot with a name on its on its back is like, what is it? Like every time I see one, I'm suspicious. Where is it going? What is it doing? They get who, lost all the time. Who is it bringing? I don't even think people would steal from it. No, what's inside it's of locked. it? Oh. Pick it up. Pick it up. Smash it open. It's very hard. They're heavy. You've tried. <laughs> no, I have it, but I know that it's hard. And like they have cameras on it, so they're gonna see who did it. Yeah, it's stupid if you do do it. Oh, okay. it's just confusing. Like now, I'm just walking down the street, and this little robot is next to me, like in Star Wars. I say, bring it on. <laughs> no, the I'm not mad about it. I'm just like, wow, this all happened so fast. Yeah. Now they, they're, they're but just... it really hasn't. It's been in the works for years since the '50s, but it's just now to the point where. It's, you know, at one point, computers took up a whole room right. and then now they don't. And so it's just they're just getting better. To me, the problem is not that the machines are, are it's sentient. People. It's that people and it's our own fear of that happening. Like it's our own increased either taking objects and making them seem human. So, for example, the little robot has eyes or, you know, it's a it's a robot dog or it's a robot person where we've given it feelings. Like once you start designing these things to talk like people or to look even if you just put googly eyes on, if you put googly eyes on a cell phone, you'd be like, oh, you know what I mean? We're so susceptible. OK, well, I'm just saying we're so susceptible to that kind of thing that the real danger doesn't come from the AI. It comes from our negative impulse to make these things cute or to make them like something that can that we would be manipulated by allison hasn't seen megan that's the problem (laughs) (laughs) i don't know enough about about the the dangers of ai to speak on the topic but i i did pull up an article about the different things you could do with chat gpt okay like what i've seen people make like scripts i just didn't know this was the name of it and when you go to the website that is not informative of what this yeah. is oh. so that's well, why so I was one confused. of the things that it can do is it can explain complex topics right so you can say like sometimes you'll google something and it will still be really confusing and you won't understand it but you can like say explain wormhole like i'm five and it will like write you a description how can and now how is anybody going to be able to do homework well you it can solve math problems for saying. you like you can get relationship <laughs> advice, so we're out of business. No That's what I'm shit. saying. Like anyone having to do homework, it can write music. What? It can write, debug, and explain code. It can create content in multiple languages. It can help you prepare okay. for an interview. It can write an essay. I mean, it is kind of like that part of it, like the because obviously the we, we are all writers here. Like right. that is a, a scary element that this thing can like write original jokes, write scripts, like somebody's, but it's still coming from somewhere. That's what no, I'm saying. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Yeah, it, they're pulling it from but other places that exist. Writes. I know, but that's the thing is like, at some point, like it still has, you still have, you to, still have, have to have the content other people. To pull from. Yes. I want to talk. I want Alex to talk. About it. Like you still have to make things like, it's not going to make you said like you for example you use the thing for shakespeare there's so much shakespeare that, that exists so it could pull could pull like the the uh way that shakespeare writes yes but if they wanted to specifically pull from like how allison writes they've got to like go to you know like your Substack or something to pull from or so it create, still has to like yes it won't have the voice of certain people unless it already exists yes yeah it I, wouldn't invent shakespearean's way of talking mm-hmm. sure 
But I don't think that like you will be able to necessarily tell the difference between a student that hands in an essay they wrote and a student that hands in a chat GPT essay. Well, I saw a student, some student at some school, I forgot what it was, but um, he actually has created software that can differentiate now. Oh, from this oh, type and of thing, and that's what everybody in the comment we're calling him a snitch and stuff. So there are other people that are creating things that combat it. Yeah, I I don't know. It's just like it's just like if they if, if your ChatGPT writes a really popular pop song, that's interesting. Yeah, but and I'm and I'm I'm here for it. Like I I don't have a problem with it. I do think a lot of people are probably going to lose their jobs. But every time there's some type of revolution or industrial thing that happens, people lose their jobs and then new jobs are created that you have to learn new skills from. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I come up with you hearing both sides. I'm yeah. I don't have like a, a solid opinion. It's just mostly a little bit confusing to me. Yeah. I think I just, I think I, I just don't want to underestimate what it can do if that makes sense because I feel like when John was first telling me about it I was like okay like oh this is funny for like half an hour to like put in silly prompts but now I'm like oh this might really like change the landscape of some stuff and like also you putting in the prompts is feeding it to get smarter too yeah okay so I'm part of the problem yep (laughs) yes I'm a I'm a small part of every big problem (laughs) you're a big part of my problems oh thank you well what do we rate this episode I will rate it 97 out of 63 fears for the future. I would rate it 100 out of five. I'm asking you for a million dollars. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'll rate it 30 out of 20 messy billboards. Mm, Very good. Thank you so much to Daniela Tolp and Lundberg for being our guests. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Moth. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Yeah.